I did never beat that girl. Never. She was beat up on by other girls. In fact, my own daughter stopped her in the jaw and broke her wrist. I got a bush that could be undone, but it can't be undone. It's impossible. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Jay is for Justice. I am rolling out episode two of What is Your Favorite Case, which is a Patreon-only bonus. And tonight I have Miss Sleuths with me to present her favorite case to me. How are you doing tonight, Dre? I'm doing sleuths. good. I'm Dre, doing good. okay, so we have to figure out what are we going to call you? Just are we going to do Dre. sleuths? You can call me Dre. Just call me Dre. I always call you Dre, Dre. Yeah, Dre, Dre. But everybody in chat knows you as sleuths. Yeah. So just for everybody's FYI, it is sleuths. So what is your favorite case? So I I really don't have a favorite, favorite case. I just chose this case tonight because I was looking back at some old cold cases a while back and I came across this one. I had never heard anything of it, nothing like on mainstream outlets like ID or Oxygen. And I felt like this case deserved attention because of the severity and the details that came out of it during the trial and investigation. Mm-hmm. It's a gruesome child abuse case that ultimately resulted in the death of a 16-year-old girl in the mid-60s. Wow. And it's still unsolved. It's actually a uh, solved case, but it's one of the most appalling child abuse cases I've ever came across, aside from the Gabriel Fernandez case that was featured on Netflix. Oh, so we should put a disclaimer out. Yes. So if you are sensitive in nature to topics such as child abuse... You may want to turn the podcast off now. Yes. Viewer discretion is advised. This is not for the faint of heart. Okay. So you're saying this took place back in the 60s. Yeah, 60s. Lay it out for me. It's a girl whose name is Sylvia Marie Likens. She was born in January of 1949 to Lester and Elizabeth. Her mom's nickname was Betty. The family was actually from Lebanon, Indiana which Mm -hmm. the town is just northwest of Indianapolis. That gives you guys like an idea Mm. of where she came, like her hometown. Southern Indiana. Yep, Southern Indiana. And she was the third child born out of five children. Um, A lot of people describe Sylvia as a very friendly, confident, and lively girl. She loved the Beatles, going to the skating rink with her sister. So she was just your typical like teenage girl growing up in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. So her father had a eighth grade education, therefore he had to carry a lot of jobs. Like he had a laundry route, he worked in different factories. He also owned a small restaurant, which unfortunately wasn't very successful. He eventually started traveling around with Carnival, selling like food and beverage from a concession cart. Ooh, like elephant ears? Yes. I love candy. elephant ears. Me oh too. my God. Okay, Carnival's sorry. Continue. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> Um, So Lester and Betty's marriage was pretty rocky at that point, you know, with all the traveling and they started arguing about finances and where the children would stay during those months. Um, So with that, Sylvia started picking up odd jobs like babysitting or running errands for neighbors so she could help pay um, the family's income so she could contribute basically. Wow. So in June of 1965, the mom, Betty, was arrested and jailed for shoplifting. And with the loss of Betty's income for those those months of her being in jail, Lester decided he would actually start traveling with the carnivals again, and it resulted in him needing a caregiver for the children. So her two brothers were sent to go live with their grandparents, 
and Sylvia and Jenny were left in need of a caregiver. So Jenny was actually the youngest daughter, and through her childhood, she had suffered from polio, which caused one of her legs to be weaker than the other. So she had to wear a, a steel brace. Um, so she was technically disabled and in need of a good caregiver. So I think that's why Sylvia and Jenny didn't go with the grandparents. So they just ditched them? In a sense, yeah. How sad. I know. It's it, this, yeah, it's it's a really sad situation. So... While looking for a caregiver, a mutual friend of the family introduced them to a woman named Gertrude Vanishevsky. So Gertrude, there's not a lot of information on her childhood, but from what I was able to gather, she was born in 1929. Her maiden name was um, Van Fossen. She was really close to her father, but had a rocky relationship with her mom. And when she was 11 years old, she witnessed her father die of a sudden heart attack. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So she, she did have a rough childhood. She dropped out of high school at the age of 16 and married a man named John Benicheski with whom she had four children with. They eventually divorced after 10 years of marriage and Gertrude was granted full custody of their children. In less than a year, she remarries to a man named Edward. They were only married three months. They annul the marriage and she gets back with John, like they get remarried and they have two more children. Wow. And during that time, she eventually ends up having an affair with a man named Dennis Wright and having a child with him, which would result in her permanently divorcing John in 1963. So Dennis, the man she had an affair with, he goes into the army and gets stationed overseas in Germany, leaving Gertrude and her seven children behind in Indiana. To top it all off, her ex-husband John stops sending child support checks to Gertrude, which he owed around $4,000. So Gertrude's mental and physical health started to rapidly decline due to financial woes and not having a man around the house. From many accounts, she was barely eating, wasn't practicing proper hygiene, and ended up having a pill addiction to phenobarbital, which- uh, What is that? So that is actually a medication that's used to treat or prevent seizures, and it's known to slow the nervous system and brain activity. So around all of this time, she was desperate, desperately in need of money and agreed to board children. Mm. So through all of that, Lester worked at a deal with Gertrude, and around July 4th of 1965, she boarded Sylvia and Jenny. The agreement between her and Lester was she would care for the kids during the summer to fall months, and he would pay her $20 a week to help cover the cost of the girls. So... This is where the mistake happens. He never inspected the home to see if the girls were going to live in a, in a clean and safe environment. If he would have investigated the home or at least stepped foot in, he would have noticed the house had no stove, no microwave, no beds for half the, the family in living in the home. Some of the rooms had two to three mattresses laying on the ground. It was severely overcrowded and the house was very unclean with barely any food in the cabinets. Um... I read in one of the articles that the children, the Banachevsky children, ate two pieces of toast for breakfast and a small bowl of soup for dinner most days of the week. They barely had any money for clothing, so they would sometimes get caught stealing neighbors' clothes off clotheslines. Mm. So you can imagine the conditions in this small house were pretty terrible. Sounds awful. Yeah. And have the kids having to, you know, fend for themselves, there had to have been some sort of mental abuse, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. 
So the girls move in and the first week for the girls seems very well, like everything goes pretty well. You know, they attended summer school as planned. They attended church. They even attended some uh, teenage social functions with Gertrude's other children. Um, The girls actually started to get to know some of the neighborhood kids. They'd come over and hang out. But then the following week is when things started to go downhill. Lester's $20 payment failed to arrive in the mail. And this is where Gertrude became enraged. She started whipping the girls with a quarter-inch thick fraternity-style wooden paddle on the girls' bare bottoms. And she started growing hate and resentment towards them. She um, started honing in more on Sylvia because Gertrude basically stated that she didn't like her sassy personality. She viewed Sylvia as a happy child with laughing eyes. So she was almost intimidated by Sylvia, which that resulted in Sylvia becoming her whipping post when anything negative ever happened. At one point, Sylvia was hit 15 times on her backside for eating too much food at a church dinner. Oh, my God. Um, It was starting to become torturous for Sylvia in September. It was noted she came home from school with a gym suit that wasn't hers. And when Gertrude found out that she'd stole... She decided to set an example of stilling by holding burning matches over Sylvia's fingertips. She felt that, yeah, it's so bad. She felt that Sylvia was a bad influence on her daughters, claiming that she was a dirty girl and making false accusations that Sylvia had had premarital sex, which resulted in her kicking Sylvia in the genitals. Mm. Through this abuse, Gertrude's children and some of the neighborhood children started taking part in it. As many as 10 children would gather around to humiliate, beat, and torture Sylvia. From making her perform sexual acts in front of them, burning her with cigarettes, forcing her to eat her own vomit, rubbing soiled diapers on her face, pouring oh salt God. into her wounds, to scolding her in hot baths, to quote, cleanse the, the youngster of her sins, Sylvia was mostly starved, gagged, and tied up during all of this. Now, was it? Was it all the kids that were being treated this way? No. So she was singled out. She was singled out. I mean, her little sister, Jenny, was, you know, abused somewhat, but not to this caliber like Sylvia was. And they basically would show Sylvia or Jenny, they would say, you know, this is if you do this, this is what's going to result in it and show like Sylvia's wounds or beat Sylvia in front of Jenny. Awful. It's horrible. So the children were often praised for coming up with sadistic, creative methods of torture. At one point, the neighborhood kids were charged five cents apiece to see the torture. To watch? To watch. That is disgusting. Completely disgusting. And they didn't have the agencies like we do now. No. To protect these children. No. And not that those agencies are always um, able to save children before it's too late, but at least we have something in place. Yeah, exactly. You know? It's it's totally different now than what it was, you know, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sylvia and her sister, which brings me to that point, because, you know, you're sitting there thinking like she's 16. I think Jenny at the time was like 13. So you're sitting there thinking like, why didn't these girls say something to like a teacher or a counselor or the neighbor, right. you know? Right. So Sylvia and her sister were petrified and didn't know where to turn to for help. At one point during all of this, Lester and Betty actually showed up to see the girls, and the girls pretended like everything was fine in fear of retaliation after the parents had left. Wow. It's so sad. Um, The abuse intensified in early October. 
Gertrude decided Sylvia was no longer allowed to attend school and she was no longer to have any contact with the outside world. In the second week of October, she was beaten and burned so bad she started losing bladder control. So she started wetting the mattress she was sleeping on. It's so sad, girl. When I was reading this, I was bawling. Um, So with that, Gertrude ruled that Sylvia was no longer fit to live anywhere near her children. So she instructed John to throw Sylvia down the cellar stairs and lock the door. So she got moved to the basement. So the last two weeks of her life was very grueling in that wet, dark, and dank basement. All she was given to eat was just crackers and water. She wasn't even allowed to use the bathroom. They treated her like a prisoner. And there were other people in this home. How many mm-hmm. How many adults were in this home? The two um, of them? It was just Gertrude. Paula was 17 at the time. So she was close to being an adult. Um, but you had like 17, 15, 12, 10. I can't remember all the ages, but the oldest would have been Paula at 17. Jeez. Yeah. So Gertrude was technically the only adult. So Gertrude didn't have a spouse or anything like that nope, living she, there? No, she was on her own um, being the caregiver to all of these children. Which the less that people know. The easier it is to get away with all of this. Right. It's so sad. Um, so one afternoon in late October, Gertrude shouted for Sylvia to come up the stairs into the kitchen. Somehow in the conversation, she asked Sylvia if she knew what a tattoo was, and Sylvia had said no. And then she got up in Sylvia's face and screamed, you branded my children, so now I'm going to brand you. You she what, my children? Branded. So you branded my children, so now I'm going to brand you. Basically saying like, Sylvia, you know, her saying that Sylvia was having premarital sex and viewed as a dirty girl, that her children had learned all these bad things from Sylvia. So she said, you branded my children, so now I'm going to brand you. Mm. It's it's horrible. So in other words, you've, you've put a bad, you've been a bad influence. Yes. And she wants to make an example of Sylvia. So was Sylvia, did she have a boyfriend or? She did have a boyfriend in California when the family was traveling with the carnival, but it never really, you know, it's just childhood love of the summer, you know? Right, right. So she wasn't going to school? She was. So when the family would travel, she would do, some months she would do summer school to make up for time lost. So that's why she, her and Jenny were in summer school during those months. So after she had told her that she was going to brand her, she grabbed a needle and heated it over the, uh, like over a burnt match. And she began carving the words, I am a prostitute and proud of it across Sylvia's abdomen and yelled, yes, she engraved her with a heated needle. Oh my God. It's horrible. It's so horrible. What happened to this young lady? Did she, so she had this girl obviously like restrained. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you got to think at this point, Sylvia had been through at least like 10 or 12 weeks of torture. So her body was so weak. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So she engraved that in her into her stomach and yelled to her, no man will ever want to marry you now. Good God. She then instructed a neighborhood kid by the name of Richard Hobbs to finish etching onto Sylvia's skin while she ran to the store. <gasps> yeah. 
Hobbs and 10-year-old Shirley Banachevsky escorted Sylvia into the basement where they branded an S and a number three on Sylvia's malnourished and beaten body. Now, I have to wonder, did these children, did they think that this was okay? Like they, you know, had seen her do this and they thought, ah, ha, ha, you know, we pick on this girl or were they... Were they actually like, oh, we don't want to do this to her? Do you know? <clears throat> I think the younger children, like um, Stephanie and uh, Shirley, I don't think they wanted to, but I think, you know, they wanted to please their mom. So they, you know, obviously submitted to doing it. But the older children, I think, knew right from wrong. And mm -hmm. to me, I kind of feel like they enjoyed it. It was, it, there was an article that I had found um, a couple years after the trial and an author had said that this reminded him of the book, The Lord of the Flies. Mm. Do you remember that story? I do. Yes. And it, it almost kind of does parallel this. So the children, to me, psychologically, I think, were getting a thrill out of this. The older children. I have to wonder what happened to these older children after all of this. And they grew up into adults. If they eventually had to face this treatment that they gave this this girl when they yeah. were kids. Well, um, John, the oldest son, he did grow up and have children of his own. And he there is an article where he actually talks about how he felt he was psychologically damaged by Gertrude and forced to do a lot of this stuff. Um, I don't know if Paula ever had kids after any of this. I I, I really don't remember if she even got married after this. There's really not a whole lot of information on what the fate of the Banachevsky children was. I do know some of them did pass away at young ages too. Some of the younger ones did. Tragic lives. Very, very tragic. Um, so after they branded the S and the three on Sylvia's body, that same night, Sylvia whispered to her sister, Jenny, quote, I know you don't want me to, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. So she knew she was going to die. Um, that next morning, Gertrude forced Sylvia to write a letter to her parents that she was going to run away. Gertrude's plan was that she was going to have John take Sylvia out to the woods and leave her there to die. Unbelievable. It's horrible. It's so bad. Um, and then on October 25th, as a last ditch effort to survive, Sylvia tried to escape the house of horrors, but she was caught by one of the sons. She was ultimately beat with a curtain rod in the mouth, and they hit her in the face numerous times with a paddle. She was also punched in the stomach. This was all down in the basement, so they never moved her. They kept her downstairs in that basement. So the next day, Gertrude told the children, we need to clean Sylvia up, you know, clean the dried blood off of her. So one of the children, um, actually, no, I think it was two of the children grabbed Sylvia and placed her fully clothed in the tub of hot water, and they realized she was no longer breathing. <gasps> yeah, they had, one of the kids. I think Stephanie. Wait, this is awful. It's horrible. Mm. Um, one of the children tried to attempt CPR on on Sylvia, but they were unsuccessful. And then eventually, the police were called, and they discovered Sylvia laying on a mattress. Um, the coroner pronounced her decease at approximately 7.30 p.m. on October 26th. Sylvia had over 150 wounds on her body and had died from a severe blow to the head, shock, and malnutrition. So during all of this, 
obviously police are inducting their investigation, going through the house, trying to get everybody's story. Ultimately, Gertrude and four of the kids were charged with the death and torture of Sylvia. Gertrude tried to plead. Yes. Gertrude tried to plead insanity and blame her children. I hope that didn't fly. No, it didn't. So what helped um, put Gertrude behind bars was uh, Jenny, Sylvia's, Sylvia's sister was the state star witness. So she was, she testified against every single one that was on, on, on the defendant's side. Like she told them every single thing that had happened in that house. Okay. I may have missed it when she passed away. Who found her? The two kids, uh, taking her upstairs to that bathtub. Oh, and they did the CPR, right. Yeah. They they tried to do, yeah, they attempted to do CPR. Um, they didn't say how long they tried. Um, but I do know that at one, this is really sad. I didn't put this in the notes, but, um, Gertrude was thinking that Sylvia was faking her own death and still hitting her while she's deceased. So she tells the police when they come in, you know, Hey, this, this girl passed away. She's, you know, she tried to make up the story about Sylvia and running away and all this, this like outlandish story about her. Well, the coroner was able to determine with rigor mortis and her wounds that she had been deceased for eight to 12 hours. Wow. So she had been gone for quite some time and they were trying to resuscitate her after many hours of of death. God, she was. mm. It's a horrible case. It's so sad. Like in the 60s, you know what I mean? And here's the other thing. It makes me sick. Oh, it does me too. It was actually noted during the trial. That some of the neighbors actually could hear Sylvia scream for help, but they never you are called law enforcement. Kidding me? Wow. Nope. Never called law enforcement. They said they didn't want to get into other people's business. You know, and that's that's how people were back then. Yeah, they minded their own. Um, but now we have nosy neighbors, and we have cameras, and we <laughs> there's no way you can get away with, no. with doing anything without being seen or heard. Exactly. But, yeah, to think that they hurt a child. Yeah. And when you think to like, I don't know, you see all these kids coming and going, when you think like, hey, there's that one girl that's missing. You know what I mean? Like, where's she at? Yeah. I think they, you know, people just would stick their head in the sand and just go about their own business and, yes. you know, think that's not, that's not my business to get involved. Yeah. And to think like, how could you feel being a neighbor and seeing a coroner pull out a 16-year-old mm. girl out of a home knowing that you heard her crying out for help days before she passed away? And you could have made that change just by picking up a, a phone or going down to the police station. Right, right. Like she could still be alive today if they would have came forward. You know, it's crazy because I was I was looking at a case from the 60s that happened down here in Florida. And one part of the case that I found interesting that I never really thought about was that they didn't have 911 back then. Oh, yeah. we're, I mean, in our lifetime, we're just programmed to, you know, we would call 911. Yeah. So this case was um, a family that was murdered and one of the daughters was away babysitting and came home to find her parents and her little sister murdered, right? Mm. Well, in this story, there was a documentary done on it. The the daughter who found them picked up the phone and called the the funeral home because that's who they called at that time. Yes. So I was just like kind of blown away by that. I never really thought about it, but she here she found her her family dead. 
they were they were stabbed. It was like a gruesome oh, murder. Goodness. And she called the funeral director, him and his the funeral director and his son. They came over and then they called the police and then it was handled from there. But Isn't it's just crazy? crazy how things have changed. Yeah. You you go call the funeral director back in those days, not, you know, nine one one. So the job for the funeral director has gotten a lot easier over the years. Oh, you're not kidding. They don't I have to imagine. play coroner. You're right. <laughs> they don't have to play coroner as much anymore. Sometimes they do come out, but um, yeah, but not to every crime scene like that. That's no, not something of that, that like that gruesome. They would see it first before law enforcement, which is crazy. Yeah, it's sad that's really too. crazy. It is. It's really sad. I mean, imagine walking on a crime scene. You know. Mm. Yeah, you're never the same. You're no. never the same. And in that documentary, the the funeral home owner's son was interviewed, and this is obviously 40 years later. He was 16 when he went over there with his dad to this crime scene. Oh, gosh. And these were girls that he went to school with. He knew them. Oh. And to see that scene at 16, he he was still tearing up, and he oh. he just was never the same. Again. I wouldn't be the same. That's that's like a level of trauma that you don't understand unless you've seen it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so sad. So, yeah. But that story very so tragic. And you got to wonder how many other children slipped through the cracks like that. That we had, don't know about. Yeah, that had a Gertrude yeah. that was supposed to be taking care of them. But when she didn't get paid, you know, it sounds like that's when things, you know, got hostile for her because it was all about just money. It was money and, you know, drugs, like her, her pills that she was taking. Right. And, right. Um, so Paula and the other children claimed that Gertrude had pressured them to abuse Sylvia. And one of the neighborhood kids, he, his name was Richard Hobbs. He actually gave his confession of his involvement, um, to one of the lead detectives. There's a really great interview out there, which I'll play that. Radio Indiana, WIBC, Indianapolis. Parole in a 20-year-old murder case. And this is WIBC News. May 1965, when 16-year-old Sylvia Likens was tortured to death by members of the Banachewski family, with whom the child was staying while her parents worked with a traveling carnival. The following is an excerpt from a 1965 newscast in which Bob Hoover spoke with Richard Hobb who explained what he did to the girl. All I did was write that thing on her stomach, and then I hit her about 10 or 15 times. How come? Well, most because the girl he told me to. She refused food. We tried to give her soup every once in a while and stuff like that, and she wouldn't take it. Well, how about these scratch marks on her stomach? Who put them on her? I did. Why? Well, Gertie just thought of it. She said, since you branded us, we're going to brand you, so she... It's in with a pen, and I went over it. She showed me how to do it, and then I went over it. I, I did it. Did you ever use any hot irons on her? No. Yeah, I, that three on her stomach, I did half of that. Mm-hmm. Shirley Ann did the other half. Where'd the S come from? What do you mean? There's a big S branded on her stomach, right? That's, one of her breath. Huh? that's what I'm talking about. Well, that's what you're talking about. Well, how about the inscription on there, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. Who put that on? I did. Did you scratch it on there, paint it on there? How'd you do it? Well, like I said before, Gertie, wrote it down there with a pen, and I did the rest. Mm. She showed me how to do it. And... Had Gertie abused this girl? Yeah. Gertrude Banachewski, however, had a different story. I did never beat that girl. Never. She was beat up on by other girls. In fact, my own daughter stopped her in the jaw and broke her wrist. And uh, so, I mean, there you go. And, and, and girls 
around the neighborhood, beat her up, bloodied her nose. I one girl broke her nose, in fact, I think. Were you ever in contact with the police on any of these occasions? Well, in the last few weeks, uh, in fact, um, uh, I think if, if you'd talk to my daughters, I, I'd ask them that uh, the, the children's father and I are divorced. And he's a policeman in Leechgrover was. And uh, I've asked the girls repeatedly, call their dad and ask them what to do. And in fact, I, I asked Jenny, I said, Jenny, and, and I told Sylvia, I said, Sylvia, I'm going to have to call the police or somebody because I can't have any responsibility. The police were called only one time. And according to Hobb... Well, she, uh, she I'll come in and about, she come up from the basement and we noticed she was cold and everything, so we carried her upstairs, give her a warm bath and artificial respiration. When, well, she stopped breathing. See, we gave her a warm bath and then she stopped breathing. So I gave her respiration for about 10 minutes, and then uh, I went and called the police. By the time police found the girl, she had been dead some 8 to 12 hours. So ultimately, Gertrude was convicted of first-degree murder. Paula was convicted of second-degree murder, and both were given life sentences. The minors were convicted of manslaughter and eventually paroled after serving two years in a juvenile reformatory. In 1971, Gertrude and Paula were actually granted new trials. On what grounds? Because of the heavy media coverage, they they determined that the the jury could have possibly been biased. Wow. Yes. So during the new trial, Paula pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was paroled from prison in 1972. Now, uh, Gertrude was still found guilty. She didn't, she didn't plead out. So she stayed in prison. And then in 1985, a parole board took Gertrude's good behavior in prison into account. And she was, she was granted parole. So Gertrude was released December of 1985. And she moved to Iowa with Paula, where she died in 1990 from lung cancer. Wow. So Paula, (laughs) this is interesting. In 2012, an anonymous tipster called into the BCLUW school district in Conrad, Iowa, stating for the board to do an extensive background check into a woman named Paula Pace. Through the background check, the school board discovered that Paula Pace was actually Paula Banachevsky, and they voted unanimously to terminate her employment with the school district. Ooh. Yes. So she lied. She gave false information about who she really was. Well, that's what that's what she gets. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry. Exactly. A I mean school teacher of all things, too. So whatever happened to her biological parents? Did they have to pay any price for any of this? No. Um, so basically what had happened when they had discovered Sylvia's body, um, Somebody had reached out to the parents. They were actually in Florida at one of the carnivals. So they had to come up to claim Sylvia's body. Um, And it was noted after her funeral a couple of years later that they had divorced. So her mom got remarried and passed away in 1998. And her dad actually moved from Indiana back to California. Um, I don't think he ever got remarried, but he actually passed away in 2013. They sure lived a long life, especially the dad. I know. 2013. And some of the other children passed away. Like Danny passed away in 2019 and Benny passed away in 1999. And what was really interesting too is right after the trial, I want to say it was about almost a year, 
there was an article that had came out, you know, explaining that Jenny Likens, the sister, had nowhere really to go because the parents were still trying to establish themselves, um, you know, moving back from Florida to Indianapolis. So the lead prosecutor and his wife actually fostered Jenny during that time. Um, So she actually got married after all of this, and unfortunately, she passed away in 2004. So a lot of people that were a part of this case have unfortunately passed at young ages, like Richard Hobbs, one of the boys that was in on some of the um, torturous beatings. He actually died at 21 years of age of cancer. 21? Mm-hmm. 21. A lot of death. Yeah, it seems like, yeah, like a lot of karma, maybe. Yes. I wonder if her siblings that the parents chose to keep, how they, you know, how they ended out, ended out, how they, how they ended up, you know? I know. A lot of them Did they know? Did they feel guilty? Like, why didn't our parents keep her? Why, or my sisters, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. How did they how did they deal with that and and digest that I I wonder for the rest of their lives. If- I think a lot of them they didn't really go into a lot of detail about the aftermath of um the Likens kids. All I know is that some of them were really deeply affected by it and that's why Lester and Betty got divorced. They it's it's almost like after the trial um I mean the one thing that I will say is when The parole came up, the parole board hearing came up in 1985 for Gertrude. A lot of Sylvia's family and the public signed this petition, which got over 4,500 signatures. Um, But that's the only thing you hear about the family. After 1985, that was pretty much it um, until the memorial came out and some of the family had attended, but they were very private. Some of the family has been very private. Yeah, I can't say I blame them. Yeah. So Sylvia was buried at Oak Hill Cemetery in Lebanon in her hometown. And in the aftermath of this whole situation, Indiana did change their state laws because of her case. And in 2016, a child advocacy center in Boone County expanded the facility and changed the name to the Sylvia Child Advocacy Center. And nearly 36 years after her death, an independent actor and film producer who was also native to Indiana named Ivan Rogers dedicated a memorial in her honor in Willard Park, which is not far from where Sylvia suffered months of abuse. Horrible story. It is. And you know, when you see things like on Netflix, the Gabriel Fernandez case, it's cases like that, that I know the public doesn't want to see, but you have to see it because these children, their stories do matter. You know? Absolutely. You know, I I had a great childhood growing up. I didn't have anything like this, you know? So it's hard for one to like displace himself and say, you know, oh, child child abuse does exist. You don't really know it exists until you actually look at a case like this and take it in. Right, That's how I felt about the Gabriel Fernandez. That was really, really hard to watch. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy. You have people that, that do this to children that live amongst us and you have no clue. Mm-hmm. Or you have people that, that may know something's going on and they zip their lip. Yes. You know what? That was, that was absolutely horrific. Yeah. I know that, you know, not every bring your case is going to be 
fun or you know something that you can you can joke around with but this definitely does shed light on something that we don't really talk about too much yeah because of the sensitive nature and it's just tough it's tough to even envision it just is. hearing about it so i think that you know bringing awareness is definitely important and this happens way too often still to this day i know this kind of stuff you know look at look at poor little gannon Oh my so, gosh, yeah. And AJ Friend and Malia Davis and I mean the list goes on Kaylee and Anthony. on and on. And it's just who? Kaylee Anthony. Now her mom was found innocent. Mm. <laughs> Are we gonna go there? <laughs> We're not gonna go there. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, that's for another day, another time. Right? Another day, another time. But yes, no, I, I fully agree. A lot of these children's cases. You know, some of them do hit the news and do gain national attention, but there's some that don't, that have to be a part of a Netflix docuseries, you know, like Gabriel's. So yeah. I feel like we as a community need to come together and address these kids, like these child abuse cases, because eventually the more you put awareness around these types of cases, the more people know the resources. For sure. I totally agree. Thank you so much, Dre Dre. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on, Jay. You know I always love having you on, Dre Dre. Oh, yeah, so, definitely. Yes, I hope everybody enjoyed the second episode of What's Your Favorite Case, even though this wasn't a favorite case. And it doesn't have to be a favorite case. I mean, who really has a favorite, favorite, favorite case? We have, I think it should be more like, what's your most intriguing case? Or Yes. When I say favorite, you know what I mean. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to Patreon number three. I'm not sure who it is yet, but- you guys will find out soon when we release the next episode. So thanks again, Dre. Thank and you. thanks everyone.